Yo, Falsetto, what's your favorite line and scene from this slick flick pick? There is a cornucopia of exquisite dialogue to select from in the film Executive Decision 1996. But I have done my falsetto profit worthwhile cinephile best to break it down into a couple. After the Navy pilots have received their Morse code message, David Grant, played by the fantastic Kurt F. Stars Russell, Jesus, they got it. And then Baker, they got it? They got it. I take back every rust picking, squid hating thing I've ever said about swabbies. It was a hilarious line. It hit then and it still hits with merciless force. Now, what is a swabby? Well, I wish Admiral Adam, my buddy, was here today to help elucidate that. But as he is not, a swabby is nautical slang that means a member of the Navy, typically one who is of low rank. Next line, David Grant talking to Lieutenant Colonel Austin Travis, played by Steven Seagal, or for purposes of this slick flick pick, Seagal in free fall. David Grant, if you don't believe me, what are you doing up here? Well, who the hell else is going to do it? You? I love that line because it's the epitome of a operations person from a research person. Lieutenant Colonel Austin Travis and his highly select team are operating on the information they are getting from the liaison to Army Intelligence, David Grant. Have you ever had a run-in with a superior when they were issuing you a command, whether it was a life-and-death command, or it was a paper-pushing, or I guess digitally seeking or sending demand? Well, I can tell you that I understand Lieutenant Colonel Austin Travis's frame of mind in this scene, and he totally calls out David Grant, who up till this point was just somebody that was relaying private highly sensitive material. There were some resplendent contender lines as well, because this is a film that, yes, it's very suspenseful, and yes, it has action moments. This is a dialogue-driven film. Obviously, the actors that were selected had to be chosen very carefully and meticulously, but there's a lot of dialogue, as some of this is very complex, and it requires good dialogue to send the package to the appropriate destination. David Grant, again, with Lieutenant Colonel Austin Travis. Colonel, grab my hand. Travis reaches his hand but falls back down. Colonel, we're not going to make it. You are. Travis shuts himself in and is sucked out of the plane to his death, i.e. Seagal and free fall. And then also David Grant talking to Baker. Now, I also really enjoy Baker in this film. Can you hook up a probe so that I can see into the main cabin on this monitor? No, we can't transmit between the probe and the monitor. Well, would a video camera work? Yeah? You got one? No. <laughs> How many times has that happened to you at work or in the military where you have a great idea and you're more than ready to execute said idea, but you are not furnished the appropriate hardware, software, or materials in order to complete your task? That is the very thing that these very special operatives are faced with and have to find a variety of avenues to circumvent and ameliorate these issues as they arise. And I love, just like my mother, Love watching people completing tasks, assigning many missions, and getting shit done. Lastly, Rat is attempting to take command of the mission. Now, Rat is played by the great John Leguizamo, and he is actually, in my opinion, one of the finest performances in this film. He's traditionally a comedian, and he's usually in goofy, ridiculous, slapstick comedic roles. But here, he is fucking amazing. Completely believable, 
as the second-in-command who ultimately takes command of this little squad on this flight. But David Grant says to him, look, I'm not telling you how to do your job, but if that DZ-5 is on board, there's going to be a bomb attached to it, and you goddamn well better find it. Such great dialogue, hard to pick just a handful. Favorite scene, three-way tie, I know. I wish I could be more decisive. I suffer, much like Hamlet in that way. But here we are, and here I'm still talking as falsetto prophet, your worthwhile cinephile. Three-way tie, the first. Basically, the general idea of Steven Seagal owning the squad. This motherfucker is in command, plausible, he earns respect, his crew obeys his commands, he is somebody who is not overacting in this film, and of all the Seagal films that I've seen, and I've seen a shit ton, I've seen Mark for Death, which I think is one of his traditional best, he was actually passable and above the law, and I kind of liked his swagger in The Glimmer Man. I have seen many a Seagal flick, but I believe I am not even remotely joking or being facetious, as some people like to use that word, and employing use of that word is an interesting word because it's really one of the only words that means what it defines in such a specific way, but he is good in this film. If you could remove Steven Seagal's side life and his prior works or his subsequent works from this film, and if you just saw him in this movie, you would not think of him as a six foot four martial artist who's often doing crazy things. You would think of him as a legit shit commander for this squad, and I loved him in this film. And I thought it was a balls of brass oriented decision to kill him off before the halfway point or the point of no return in the film. Okay, my second favorite scene is Kurt Russell walking down the airplane aisle with a blue hoodie on. That blue hoodie really shines a spotlight on his blue eyes. He's holding this high tech pistol with a suppressor on it. It caught his team by surprise. He takes Halle Berry hostage. He's walking very slowly. He's sweating profusely. He looks like a total badass. And it's the first time you get to see him out of that James Bond tux. And he is the man. I love that scene and everything subsequent to that moment where he's walking down the airplane, no mask, just him and Halle Berry as a human shield. <laughs> Please don't shoot Halle Berry. Oh man, you want to talk about gorgeous. Woo! And my boy Gangster completely agrees with me on that assessment of ascribing a tremendous value to Halle Berry from an aesthetics perspective. Lastly, John Leguizamo as Rat, adapting to new situations on the fly. There's about eight times in this film where he gets bad news. He wants to go Avenue A, or he wants to achieve Objective Q, and shit goes sideways, and he has to adapt. Darwin, E. Ching, just like from the movie Collateral, which was a previous slick flick pick that I enjoyed immensely with Red Devil. He has to adapt to these new circumstances. He can't remain stubborn. He can't remain steadfast in his bullheadedness. He has to adapt in order for them and the passengers and the fate of the entire Eastern Seaboard to possibly make it out alive. So I love seeing him put in challenging situations and having to think, work as a team. We're not talking that synergy, seven deadly synergies bullshit. We're talking about just a bunch of guys that are working together to solve a crisis. A bunch of guys plus the gorgeous, sightly, comely, fetching Halle Berry. Greetings, cinematic fanatics. Allow me the pleasure of ushering you through the criminal safe house at the far reaches of the globe in order to acquire an unauthorized noxious toxin known as DZ5. And though Austin Travis's team 
proved tardy to the party and wildly unsuccessful, they still seek, try, and strive. Though one of his commando bros doesn't make it out alive. With David Grant's policies, theories, and analyses, Travis just won't jive. But Lieutenant Colonel Austin fucking Travis, portrayed by Steven Seagal, will greet his end and meet his maker in a left field, but still scripted, free F-stars fall. This is a pulse-pounding, chest-thumping, resounding, non-essential tactical gear-dumping, brilliant design engineer, and astute U.S. Army intelligence liaison stumping. Also, via Trump's real-life ex-wife as part of the cast, trumping tactical airborne eastern seaboard-bound mid-flight treat of Slick Flick Pick, an entertaining Slick Flick Explaining series, a desirable diversion from the main vein of Chemohawk Sessions. You are my cinematic fanatic. I, your worthwhile fucking cinephile. For your 29th episode, I review one of the most stirring, jet engine purring, gripping, seatbelt slipping 90s action thriller films with an acute antagonist armed with guns, threats, evil stares, and a sleeper. Each time the commandos try to ameliorate the matter, Shiz only gets deeper. I hope David Grant marries that hottie Hallie, for she is one spunky stewardess who proves a keeper. But if these resilient army rats aren't good at playing Minesweeper, then they and 400 plus souls will soon shake hands with the grim F-Stars Reaper. I have reveled in this film since my first youthful HBO viewing, in the presence of my mother who, no doubt, crushed hard on Kurt Airplane Fucking Russell, who, both with the terrorist sleeper and Halle Berry, he had to tussle. It is with a mixed bag of pleasure, cinematic fanatics, I speak to the fluctuating altitude and mild turbulence that leaked into the reviews. Though financially applauded, this outrageously suspenseful treat was somewhat critically lauded. Somewhat remains unacceptable to me, as it should be a critically approved flight that makes you remain on your plane seat's edge. For the tension builds to a razor edge, and throughout this extraordinarily stressful flight, your manicured nails you'll beg to bite, though you have goggles equipped with vision night. Don't let Hassan out your goddamn sight. Austin Travis's crew seems rather tight, and of Grant's tucks, they soon make light. They see his brilliance and fair questions as an affront, a slight. But Grant does, of course, prove right and lands this massive airplane machine without too much of a catastrophic fight. To own the new leadership role, Rat is more than willing. Seagal finds himself in freefall less than one hour in, though he practically shared top cast billing. Though the bomb is diffused, there's still loads of killing, but it's the hushed recon moments this flick proves most thrilling. And though over two hours long, Every running high on altitude, low on time nanosecond proves fulfilling. This is a masterful cinematic illustration of mid-air cat and mouse that crash lands a duo of genres, action and thriller. It transitions so seamlessly between genres and off simultaneously in such a way that you process it as a simple study in filmmaking sleekness. I offer you 
regarding the pseudo-preposterous but confidently shot, paced, and executed flick with the balls to show an elite crew's failure to recover the nerve agent, to kill one of their more bankable casted stars before he could set foot inside the 747, as he is sucked out of the link sleeve free-falling in descent towards hell while his soul ascends to heaven. Russell is the anchor in this cinematic departure, both out of his league and beset with fatigue, yet he is the one who stokes our intrigue. He may not be the commander-in-chief, but of the off-camera president's thunder, he proves a thief. For he is the one with a critical series of choices to make in Executive Decision, circa March 1996. This film's villain is a cool fucking customer. Howley proves to accomplish a shizload more than the passenger's coffee stir. Of Grant's and Travis's irksome history, we're able to infer. The two pilots, when able, whisper tales of American soldier sightings as they confer. The subplot dilemma involves a sleeper, not a saboteur, and while Russell in combat proves an amateur, he looks sweaty as fuck in his blue hoodie and tightly grips his pistol with attached silencer. Recline, cinematic fanatics, in your favorite, well-worn, stale chair. Rustle up some popcorn, fresh as fuck, the antithesis to that stale-ass chair I just mentioned. Zoom in and zone out as we unwind the daily grind with a slick F-Stars flick pick. Executive decision is the flick, so very slick, hence my F-Stars pick. When slick flick pick is near, stick around, till falsetto prophet's voice you hear. Lights, camera, action, lens distraction, and with the right slick flick pick, grant satisfaction. I'm your worthwhile cinephile, your my cinematic fanatic. Together, we excitement unlock and run down the real world's unimaginative clock while feasting our eyes on this slick flick pick prize. Enter with me, you cinematic fanatics, into the realm of film's fantasy as we unwind the grind of reality. I offer you pick 29, slick flick pick. Hassan has some nerve, agent. Seagal in freefall. Executive Decision 1996. Today, we'll discuss why you cannot let a character's ridiculous name, Rat, detract from their solid acting scenes. This nail-biting slick flick is designed for big screens. How thick the tension looms between these army dudes and their rival naval marines. While their mission is to thwart the fuck out of the pending attack via whatever means, their resourceful, rational, and resilient approach makes them lean, grain fatigue-wearing, sleeper-slaying, 9mm bullet-spraying, passengers, and the day-saving machines. Your worthwhile cinephile, Falsetto Prophet. Please, cinematic fanatics, if you enjoy Slick Flick Pick, tell your friends, tell your compadres, tell your significant others, and please go to Apple Podcast and rank me, rate me, and leave comments. If there is a slick flick pick you are interested in hearing, please let me know. But your comments are the fuel, the jet fuel, that keep this plane in the air. So please do go to Apple Podcasts and leave me comments. It won't take you but one minute of your time. Now, these were some contender titles that I had for this film, Executive Decision. Tense Traffic Controller. Fear Traffic Controller. 
applying cabin pressure, sleeper with a beeper, wide awake sleeper, diffusing altitude, and cockpit in his stomach. Now the expression, pit of one stomach, is an idiom, and it means the middle of one's stomach, the location of a visceral response. I got a strange feeling in the pit of my stomach when they told me that Steven Seagal was A, going to be in the film, and then B, died prior to halfway through. Executive Decision is a 1996 American action film directed by Stuart Baird in his directorial debut. That, to me, is highly impressive. If you started your first film as a director, and it was executive decision, not based on a book, not based on any real tangible source material, it's an original work, and it's got a top cast. Kurt Russell, Steven Seagal, Halle Berry, John Leguizamo, Oliver Platt, Joe Morton. I know these people. I have seen them in numerous films. Obviously, Russell is the big grab, but the rest of this cast ain't no fucking slouch, neither. This is a great production. Great production quality, sound design, it's a great sounding film. The action sequences are handled more than competently, and it is a thrilling adventure. It takes something where you have a bunch of guys working in close quarters, sweating profusely, having to whisper and look at each other and gesticulate for about an hour and 10 minutes, and you are riveted in your seat for the duration. Very, very impressive. I watched this film when I was young. I watched it with my mother. It wasn't too violent, so she could get through it no problem. And I remember loving it when I watched it in the 90s, and I still love it today. Executive Decision, yes, it has been called Die Hard at 40,000 Feet, or whatever you want to call it, but I don't care. The performances, the tension, the way that it puts people in dilemmas, and then creatively thinks their way out of the problem, that is very satisfying to watch. It depicts the rescue of an airliner hijacked by terrorists, by a small team placed on the plane in mid-flight. It made $122 million against a $55 million budget. That is an undeniable success profit. However, the reviews were a little bit more of a mixed bag. Now, the music is by Jerry Goldsmith, who you would recognize because he's done the score for a shit ton of films, but very good. And of course, Warner Brothers as a distributor, Warner Brothers has a colossal amount of clout. The running time is over two hours, but to me, this film breezes on by 133 minutes long but to me, it felt like an hour and 45 minutes. I love this F-Stars slick flick pick. And I should have put it on the list sooner, but it was recently available for free on a streaming service. So I treated myself and I rewatched it. And I am very, very content with myself for doing so. I mentioned the cast. Kurt Russell is the lead as David Grant. Steven Seagal plays Lieutenant Colonel with the most Texas sounding name I've ever heard. Austin Travis, US Army Special Forces. Halle Berry is Jean, the flight attendant. She has a small role. She was paid at least a million dollars for her part in this film, but she has an important role. John Leguizamo is Captain Carlos Rat Lopez, U.S. Special Forces. Now, David Suchet as Naji Hassan as Altar, the co-chief of the extremist organization. He is fantastic. He is a very accomplished actor, and I remember his performance in A Perfect Murder with Michael Douglas and Gwyneth Paltrow. He is great. Joe Morton is also great. I recently saw him in a rewatch of Terminator 2, but he's been in a shit ton of shit. B.D. Wong, always great. He's Staff Sergeant Louis Young. And then, of course, you have Whip Hubley as Sergeant First Class Michael Baker. He also plays a critical role, and many, many others. Marla Maples was actually Donald Trump's wife. She is his ex-wife now, but she was his wife back in the day. 
and JT Walsh, always a welcome presence, as Senator Jason Mavros, and many, many more. Even if you're not a worthwhile cinephile, as I am, and you haven't seen that many slick flick picks, you still would recognize at least half of this cast. I am extremely confident. I am about as confident that you would recognize the majority of this cast as David Grant is confident that there is DZ-5 aboard the 747. Now, Steven Seagal says he was enticed to accept the unusual role of Austin Travis by a hefty salary, which amounted to around a million dollars per day spent on the shoot. He also found some satisfaction in knowing that his character's unexpected fate would shock the audience, and therefore did not regret taking the role. Very cool. Now, I will, of course, talk about the full-blown Ebert review at the end of this broadcast, but for now, I can tell you that on Rotten Tomatoes, the film has an approval rating of 63% based on reviews from 41 critics. Executive decision adheres entertainingly to classic action thriller formula, proving a genre outing doesn't need to win points for originality to be solidly effective. Fair enough. On Metacritic, audiences poll scored by CinemaScore gave it an A- on an A to F. Hey, an A- may not have been good enough for my father, but it was good enough for me, I agree. Leonard Malton called it a tense, inventive thriller, which needed more editing. And Leonard Clady of Variety wrote, The picture's logic may be a bit fast and loose, but its action and excitement quotient is top-notch. How about that shiz? I approve. This is a film where you have Kurt Russell, who is boxed in and has to break out of these boxes quietly, calmly, and with a shiz load on his mind. If you think you're having a stressful day, I want you to put yourself in David Grant's shoes for five minutes. This guy is on a flight that is a ticking time bomb with his reputation, his life, and the fate of his countrymen, many, many passengers on the flight, and major cities on the eastern seaboard at stake. This guy has got both hands full, and he proves up to the proverbial task, if I do say so myself. Now, it is that part, the TT, or the trivialized trivia, where I like to briefly trivialize the trivia found on IMBD. According to John Leguizamo in his autobiography, Seagal physically attacked him during filming. <laughs> I wonder if Seagal was wearing his gi when he did this. In an effort to scare the cast and crew, Leguizamo claimed that during rehearsals, Seagal had come in and told the cast that, I'm in command. What I say is law. That's nutsoid. Thinking it was a joke, Leguizamo started to laugh, but Seagal proved him wrong by slamming him against a brick wall with an Aikido elbow, wow, knocking all the air out of him and dropping him to the ground. In 2022, Leguizamo confirmed he did not have a good time with Steven Seagal. No one has. Well, I'm certainly glad that they buried the bloody karate chop hatchet. Not. According to Leguizamo, his frequent improvisation angered Kurt Russell so much that they got into a shoving match. Leguizamo's improvised line, hope the smell doesn't give us away, started the fight. Well, two things come from this. It's as if, I don't know when they happened in secession, but John Leguizamo should have learned his lesson after tussling with Steven Seagal. Instead, he's acting like a jackass on set and ends up pissing off Kurt Russell. It sounds like Kurt Russell is probably one of the only blameless ones in this. I actually like the line, hope the smell doesn't give us away. And after knowing this trivia and rewatching the film, I clocked Kurt Russell's face after Luigiamo said that, and he kind of nods his head and then pulls himself down the cord. I just think that that's certainly interesting. Now, Halle Berry originally did not want to be part of this movie, but said yes when she was offered $1 million for the job. That was her first million-dollar payment for a film. 
I thought it was a good role for anyone to take because what she does is crucial to the plot and she looks like a hero. I don't understand why she would be reluctant unless she was concerned about being involved in some formulaic action film that might lead to some franchise or at least a sequel, which I'm surprised there was never a sequel because there's really something there. There is an undeniable chemistry with Kurt Russell and these remaining super soldiers. I really think they could have gone on more missions together. It is what it is, and this is the acceptance. This is me expressing acceptance of that fact. David Grant is seen taking flight lessons. In real life, Kurt, my main man, motherfucking Russell, is an FAA licensed pilot holding ratings for several aircraft types. Ah, similar to Harrison Ford. The F-14 Tomcats that intercept the 747 are actual U.S. Navy Tomcats that the Navy agreed to use in the movie. The aircraft were from the squadron VF-84 Jolly Rogers and the filming of this movie was one of the squadron's last official duties before being disbanded. I wish my main man brother Adam were here for that line, because as you recall, when I did Slick Flick Pick with brother Adam on Crimson Tide, we talked about how certain film productions have to get permission from the Navy for usage of their aircraft, their submarines, their planes, their equipment. So that would have been an interesting one to drill in deeper with him. But alas, this is what we know. Knife maker Jack Crane made the knives used by Leguizamo and B.D. Wong. Seagal is carrying a Gerber Mark II dagger. That is the same knife he used in Under Siege, which is interesting, because Under Siege is not only another action film, but Under Siege, much like Executive Decision, has been labeled Die Hard at 35,000 feet. Under Siege has been labeled when Die Hard is on a ship. Very interesting. Or when John McClane from Die Hard is on a ship. Coming from Texas and spending time in Austin, I found this one to be appealing. Steven Seagal's character Austin Travis is derived from the city of Austin, Texas, which is in Travis County. The city of Austin and Travis County both are named to honor heroes of Texas. William Barrett Travis was commanding officer at the Alamo during the War for Independence against Mexico in 1836. Stephen F. Austin led the first 300 settlers to Texas and is honored with the title of Father of Texas. That is interesting because it makes me wonder if Steven Seagal is up to that task because that is quite a Bigfoot-sized pair of shoes to fill. Oh man, I totally relate to this one in a very shocking way. Joe Morton, who plays Cappy, insisted on staying in character throughout filming. On this occasion, it meant he was duct taped to a makeshift gurney for 43 days. At the wrap party, he ruptured both Achilles' tendons due to muscle wasting in his legs. Hold on to your butts, because 43 days has such a almost unconscionably coincidental connection to me. 43 days, you cinematic fanatics, is the exact to-the-day amount of days that your main man, Falsetto Prophet over here, was in the hospital. A big chunk of that was in ICU, and a big chunk of that was in physical recovery. But I completely understand about the muscles atrophied, because that exact same thing happened to me after just three weeks of not using muscles at all. That is absolutely insane, but 43 days for Joe Morton, 43 days for Falsetto Profit. Now, I did not rupture my Achilles tendons, fortunately, but I completely understand what it's like to have to learn how to walk, talk, and breathe again. Holy ballsack, Batman. That is some insane shiz, and I'm still reeling from that connection that I just made. Now, this is another macabre connection. I cannot believe this. But the film portrays the hijacking of a plane to be used in a terrorist attack. Now, this film came out in 1996. And as you know, wherever you are in the world, 
It was five years later in 2001, something similar would happen and a shockingly devastating event would occur in America that would forever change the complexion of the world from all different types of circumstances, perspectives, but the flight number is 343, so 343, which is the exact number of firefighters that were killed on September 11th, 2001. I absolutely cannot believe that. I think that is beyond insane. There are obviously a lot of numerals that it could wind up being for the plane tag number or the flight number. That's two back-to-back coincidences that I'm still wrapping my cerebellum around. I don't, I'm speechless. Look at your watch, mark your calendar, and remember the date. Falsetto Prophet, your worthwhile cinephile, found himself speechless. That is not a frequent occurrence, I will tell you this. During the mid-90s, rumors of sexual harassment and domestic violence started to circulate around Seagal, his ex-wife coming out and accusing him of beating her. Well, evidently he beat up John Leguizamo on set. Rumor has it, rumor has it, that Kurt Russell refused to work with him for this reason. Hence, Seagal's early death scene as he was dropped from production and dropped from the plane, and is not listed in the opening credits. It is speculated that John Leguizamo's character Rat was expanded to take over Seagal's role. That is very interesting, and it also, I believe it to be a smooth transition, because once Rat started acting like the leader on the flight, I completely bought in 1000%. Although, he was a little trigger happy, and he was a little explosive happy, I felt like he was a sensible leader. In the original 1996 release, Naji Hassan refers to Westerners as infidels. You know, we will strike deep into the heart of the infidel. In the digital release post 9-11, he refers to them as enemies. The original lip motion can be seen as of 2019 on Netflix. I'm always amazed at the changes that are made to dubbing, the subtitles, the characters' expressions, and that is as good of a story as any to provide on an IMBD notification. That is very, very interesting. And lastly, when it is time for Dr. Grant, a student pilot who is not yet soloed, to try landing this behemoth of a 747, he does several things extraordinarily correctly. He recognizes that he does not know the limitations of his plane, as for the pilot operating handbook. Also correct is the federal requirement to have the POH, or pilot operating handbook, available on the flight deck at all times. He understands that every plane has an approach and landing speed, or it will pancake on touchdown. He almost stalled the plane by slowing down without extending the flaps, but worked it out as a competent person would. And he figured out the next alarm quickly about the landing gear. Finally, when faced with an obviously too high approach, he realized he did not have the expertise to turn around, but he got his bearings and located the small field at which he was taking lessons. Now, I will remind you that he was not alone. Halle Berry, hottie with a body, was there every step of the way. He set the plane down even though he ended up off the end of the runway. His knowledge of this complex airplane is probably because he took his flying lessons in a plane with a powerful engine and retractable landing gear, which is the only truly unrealistic aspect. 99% of student pilots will learn to solo in the smallest, cheapest, and least complex trainer available. Well, I can tell you that with regard to piloting, my father-in-law is now officially a licensed pilot. He taught himself, and that is quite an aerial feat, if you will, pardon the expression. But yeah, I just think that was one of the more riveting and suspenseful scenes in the film. You think you're over, but you're not. And now after slaying the terrorists 
and defusing the Weapon of Destruction, they are still faced with the issue of, well, how do we land? And it takes me back to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You know how to fly a plane, son? Fly? Yes. Land? No. Of course, the joke's on us because Harrison Ford is, in fact, an accomplished pilot in real life. We stick magic spit-soaked wands in our collective mouths, and we diffuse this decoy motherfucker boom-boom. Executive Decision 1996, Warner Brothers. Much like the film A Few Good Men, there is great patriotic music played throughout this film. The score and the sound design and sound effects are mesmerizing. Still, to this day, I believe they hold up. We're looking at this Triste map that looks kind of like a video game, like almost like the quality of an Atari when it gets into the pixelation of the map itself. But it is May 17th, 1995. Ah, 1995. That is the year that the film 7 came out, 15 miles outside of Triste, Italy. U.S. Army Special Force Counter-Terrorist Strike Team. Ah, the strike team. That makes me think of my boy J-Dog and that cop show, The Shield, with Vic Mackey and his coveted, feared strike team. It is a Chechen Mafia safe house. I didn't know that there was the Chechen Mafia, but I guess there is. The knife work by Steven Seagal, as you would expect, is excellent. Excellent, excellent, excellent. He did some excellent knife work in Under Siege and a half a dozen other films. You give this man a knife and he can cut up a turkey or he can remove your throat for you. He can handle both in equally measured manner. We have a predator village attack scene kind of right here. We've got a tight crew. They move well. They communicate well. And they're kicking loads of ass. That is what came to mind as I'm watching this team attack this safe house. The scene in Predator that Wham Bam Cam and I talked about when we did our slick flick pick on Predator, this fool did not clear the room. He is too focused on saving the whiny hostage who's tied to a chair. Look, fool, the hostage can wait. You can tell the hostage is alive. They're not bleeding profusely. And you start untying this dude, and then you get shot. You take your eye off of the ball. You fumbled it, and now you die as a result. They're there looking for this DZ-5 nerve agent. Empty. The room, the warehouse, the basement, empty. Just like Green Zone. No WMD. And Green Zone was another slick flick pick that I have already presented for your oral pleasure. Now these little tie-ins, I'm not creating these because I already cranked out Predator, Green Zone. I did this way back when. I didn't know I was going to be doing executive decision. So these coincidences are mounting to an almost impossible to understand level and degree. Jim and John Thomas are listed as the producers. I have seen these names and I've seen them recently. James Thomas is an American screenwriter, and with his brother John Thomas, was involved in the screenplays of, wait for it, wait for it, Predator, Predator 2, Executive Decision, Wild Wild West, Behind Enemy Lines. I was just talking about Predator, not five seconds ago, and here we are, another connection. I think it's kismet, perhaps something more. But it's these moments, you cinematic fanatics. The more knowledge that you cram in to your noggin, the more trivia that you hold and you house and you harbor, you can start making these connections. It's great for conversation at parties. It's great for icebreakers. It's great for follow-up and tag-ons. It's just great to have all this knowledge. And it's not just having the knowledge. It's accessing it readily and quickly. Collins is dead. The DZ-5 unrecovered. I love Steven Seagal here. He's provided with a perfect opportunity to overreact or to say something, to make some glib remark or some angry retort, but he doesn't. He does not. He does not overact in this film. 
He never overacts in this film, but I cannot say that for all of his films. Three months later, David Grant, he's got a PhD from Becking's Research Institute, and he's a consultant to the U.S. Army Intelligence. It's time for him to fly solo. He seems nervous, but capable, and it is a fun little scene. We get this very harsh flashback that's in black and white, and it's the dude from The Fugitive, the one-armed man who ultimately was responsible for the death of Richard Kimball's wife. Is it needed for the film? I don't think so. It seems a little disjointed. It seems a little crammed in, but we're going to roll with it. It's very brief. You get to see like an explosion. You get to see some machine guns, so it's fine. It's, it's acceptable. But now it's Athens, Greece, 10 days later. So I think it's 10 days later from the three months later where we had this flashback 10 days before where this guy, this terrorist was apprehended. Now the pilot, the guy that is flying the plane is from the show, The Shield. Now you blink and you miss it. He was only in a couple of episodes, maybe even one, but I've seen his face before. I am phenomenal and terrifyingly observant when it comes to faces. And I know him from The Shield Show, which is the second reference to The Shield Show. And I'm not even 75% done with this uh, slick flick pick. What do you think about that? JT Walsh is an incredible actor. I loved him in Breakdown, which is another Kurt Russell film, and Backdraft, which is another Kurt Russell film. He was great in The Negotiator. He was great in Outbreak. All of those films I just listed have the potential to be future slick flick picks. I love this scene where this guy gets something dropped on his personal electronic device, stupid woman. This is actually foreshadowing, and it will be an important scene. When you're watching it, you think they're just trying to establish some characterization and some personality with these innocent victims on the plane that you're going to be with for over an hour's time, but it actually has a significant little connection to it. Now we see London, England at a Marriott. Now I like to stay at Marriott's. I am a Marriott reward member. Now the bomber here, the suicide bomber is from Crocodile Dundee 2. I would recognize that face anywhere. And he says, listen to the sound of Altar. Whoops. He had an explosive exit. Master of Disguise is the antagonist. He is wearing fake hair, a fake beard. He moves like an old man. It reminds me of that great film, The Prestige, which will no doubt be a slick flick pick at some point. But when Christian Bale is talking to his ingenue and he's talking to Hugh Jackman, he's talking about how the deception when you are a chameleon and when you are an imposter, you're wearing a costume or you have a disguise. For the deception to work, you have to maintain it at all times. You have to assume that people are always watching. And that's what this master antagonist does in the first couple minutes of the film. Now, the scenes here as the bad guys are setting up is reminiscent of Passenger 57, Wesley Snipes, one of my favorite action films from the 90s. The AK-47 is in the service cart. And then I like how the bad guy is holding a gun on the pilots and he says, careful, I am a pilot. In other words, don't try to do anything fancy because I'll know. And all of that is communicated in a one-sentence expression. Careful, I am a pilot. Now we get this guy. He was kind of the Apu from The Simpsons in the film Bad Boys. He's one of the terrorists. I recognize him as well. But he was the guy that tries to hold a gun on Martin Lawrence and Will Smith, and it does not work. Now back up and hand me a pack of Tropical Fruit Bubblicious and some Skittles. Now the Air Marshal is smart here. He sees shit going down and he moves quickly. He puts his gun and his ankle, and he puts his air marshal badge in a hiding place, because in case they are searched, he does not want to make it easy for them. Now, that air marshal is the same guy who had a small role in the film The Fugitive, which I just referenced very recently as well in this episode. These connections are forming a neural network that I am going to have difficulty processing, 
as we proceed further. It's quite a mindfuck. Michelle Thomas, this is a girl who likes hockey. And this is a girl who Kurt Russell was flirting with at the beginning of the film. But he gets called away on business. We have an armed deputy U.S. marshal on flight. Now, what I learned about that from a podcast, I don't know if it's true or not, but they were saying that they never make that public knowledge. If you have a deputy U.S. marshal on the flight, it is meant to be more secretive and clandestine than that. And then we get this thing for Kurt Russell. Here's the data you wanted on White Rose. B.D. Wong would go on to be White Rose in the stupendous show, Mr. Robot. Yet another connection. Now, I don't even think that could have been an Easter egg or anything of the sort, because this film came out in 1996, and Mr. Robot would occur well after 2010. So I don't know, but I think it's insane that Kurt Russell is handed a dossier on White Rose, and White Rose would be the name for B.D. Wong's character's alter ego in Mr. Robot. Oh, <laughs> this one guy says, well, I've got a Grateful Dead t-shirt that Kurt Russell can wear as he's wearing a tuxedo. And one of his female colleagues says, or a sports bra and running shorts. It would be a different movie entirely if that was the wardrobe that Kurt Russell wore upon the hijacked flight. And he says, look, they said, come as you are. This stare down in the hall between him and Steven Seagal is like UFC level intense. And I fucking love it. It's as if the two guys are eye fucking each other, but not quite. Oh, then we get this dude, Sarlo, S-A-R-L-O-W. He's a dude from Dante's Peak. I did discuss in a Slick Flick Pick episode with Wham Bam Cam possibly about doing a slick flick pick on Dante's Peak. But sadly, you cinematic fanatics, I recently rewatched Dante's Peak, and I don't think it's worthy. I don't think it held up. I don't like it as much as I did when I saw it when I was young and I was in middle school. Actually, I was somewhere between elementary school and middle school at that time. But I will not be doing it because it is not worthy. It did not hold up. I apologize. Flight 343. Now we're in a war room. They give Grant audience. I wish I got audience at work, by the way, but they are willing to listen to what this man has to say. I don't know if it's a situation where his intellectual reputation precedes him, or if they are just so desperate, they're willing to hear anything that any swinging dick has to say. And then I see how Stephen Skull whispers to his compadre, this is the prick who sent us on a wild goose chase. This is not a throwaway line. Stephen Seagal is angry because it was Kurt Russell's information that ultimately led to the failure and recovering the DZ-5. Of course, Kurt Russell would later defend himself and say, it was there, you were late to the party, pal. Altar, we learn from Kurt Russell, means revenge in ancient Arabic. I didn't realize that he was a cunning linguist. Ha! Huh. Man, the puns. The puns can really stack up if you know what you're doing. 406 passengers, plus the military that would ultimately sneak on board, of course. And I think that Halle Berry should count for about 50 of those passengers because she's so fine. Hail Mary Pass and Remora. So Remora is the name of the spacecraft that they will be using to stealthily slide onto this plane. And they're calling this a Hail Mary Pass. That is the name of the mission. Well, I would call it a bloody Hail Mary on account of all the slaughter that will end up occurring. Andrews Air Force Base, Maryland. I have not been there, nor have I been to Maryland, but I hope to make it to Maryland one day. I hear they have excellent crab legs. I really like the efficiency here. Steven Seagal commands the screen. Yes, he's a large physical presence, but he is extremely authentic as their leader. And he's like, all right, gotcha. Break it down, boys. Close quarter weapons, comm units, ordnance, sleep agent. Dump the rest. He's not fucking around, and it's awesome. Now, this flick sounds great. The shooting, the explosions, the aircraft, the engines. I like all of it. Great sound, great sound design. 
E2 Hawkeye. It's an Eisenhower carrier. I noticed that a lot of former presidents' names are used for military apparatus. Anything suspicious, says Altar, will bring about repercussions. This is a man who's cool, calm, and fucking collected, not to be trifled with. And this is one of the best lines ever. And it's one of the best lines from Steven Seagal. And it's one of the best lines in anything that has involved a military character or any one of the kind. That's the way it's going to be. I've used that myself. Oh, you don't like it? That's the way it's going to be. He stands his ground. Baker is extremely cool. So is Rat. Love Rat. And then there's mention of Windshear. Well, Windshear would actually play a pivotal role in the film Outbreak, which I've also talked about, because Outbreak is another film with J.T. Walsh in it. He has a small role. But Windshear is often important when it comes to delivering bombs and things that are happening with regards to turbulence. Grant is the hero. Very suspenseful entry. Oh, no, wait a second. Steven Seagal is the hero because he saves Grant's life along with the remainder of the men so that they can have a chance. Wow. R.I.P. Steven Seagal at 43 minutes and 41 seconds. And it's also interesting to note that as the jet is crashing, the remora is crashing, the pilot actually ejected. So possibly he survived. However, I'm sure it was a water landing. Is he able to radio back and let the guys know, hey, I think they were able to get on board? It's unclear. Or maybe he lands in the water and gets tangled in his parachute and dies. I don't know. Now, poor Cappy has a fractured vertebrae. This sucks. And it sucks what happened to him in real life, i.e. the IMBD, as a result of his method acting. But I love when John Leguizamo or Rat pulls up the Velcro to show the US flag. It's a silent way, an immediate way of letting this pilot know we're the good guys. Do what we tell you to do with our eyes. Now, this is one of the funniest things. So during this very suspenseful moment, when they're all hiding, because the chief terrorist is instructing the pilot to go down and investigate why there was this electrical short, you can see at 48 minutes and 29 seconds to 48 minutes and 31 seconds, you can see B.D. Wong's agape mouth, and it's absolutely hilarious. He looks like a horror character in the film The Grudge or some shit, but he looks like he's possessed or in a trance. <laughs> and I love it. I froze it, and I stared at it for about 30 seconds, and I said to myself, okay, you have to get on with your life, but this is worth noting, and noted I did. Sadly, the radio does not make it aboard. The Pentagon is going to shoot us down. Holy shitballs. This is getting even more intense when it was already at the busting of the sides of the silo intense. They hold a knife to the fat boy's throat. That's Oliver Platt. I think they were going to kill him. I think they were going to slice his throat if he did not silence himself because this fool wanted to climb up the ladder, make their presence known, and tell this unstable terrorist, hey, we're on board now. Do you think we can negotiate some kind of truce? And eh, they did the right thing, silencing Oliver Platt. And then I like when John Leguizamo asserts his dominance as the new commander and says, look, civilian, Rat is very adaptable, like a rat. Ha, huh, I wonder if that's why that's his nickname. He would make a great team leader for real. He really stepped up to the plate in this film. And I forgot about John Leguizamo, the comedian, and I was absolutely in the zone. Yes, please lead me. Lead me into oblivion. I don't care. The soldiers are working quietly diligently, and it is riveting. It is very attention-grabbing and sustaining just watching these soldiers go to work and do what they do best. Kind of like in the film Heat. You're watching a bank robbery crew. You're watching a police department operate efficiently, effectively, and they are a tight-knit group. The drilling for the scopes was extremely suspenseful. I enjoyed that. I still enjoy it. And I love how when Grant is putting the information in a laptop, he labels each of the red dots by way of where they are geographically in the plane. He labels them like terrorist one, terrorist two. I think that's so funny. 
Like, do you really have to have a map? Do you have to have a key or an index? I think we know what the red dots are. They're not child molesters, and there's not 12 Halle Berries on the plane. These are clearly the bad guys. I don't think you have to number them or write the word terrorist. That's so unnecessary and superfluous. And it's funny because saying unnecessary and superfluous is unnecessary and superfluous. Woo! I am working up a sweat, similar to how sweaty that blue hoodie is upon Kurt Russell's body, his person, as he's walking down that aisle towards the end of the film. They say that the terrorists have scorpions on both of them, 9mm scorpions, AKM, FNCs. Wow, a lot of lingo for weaponry. Kurt Russell is climbing in the ceiling, and it is nail-biting. Also, there's mention of, oh, remember when Jesse Jackson released The Hostages? Look how much mileage he got out of that. At 1 hour, 4 minutes, and 27 seconds, you see the traces of a mustache on Halle Berry. That sucks. I'm tempted to take back all the wonderful comments I've made about her aesthetic appearance previously on this episode, but we're going to chalk it up to a camera flare or something that was a glitch in the system because Halle Berry is way too fine to have a stash. Now you see a map of DC, <gasps> plus music, <gasps> equals tension. The olive oil shipment, of course, is where the rotten, dirty bomb is hiding out. I love this line, you can forget Washington. This is delivered by Kurt Russell. There's enough nerve agent to wipe out half the eastern seaboard. Holy shit. The bomb maker's name is Demu. That's D-E-M-O-U. And he ultimately is the sleeper, but the camera work and the red herring that is illustrated in this film is actually clever. It doesn't feel like a cheat, because if they had shown the face of the man who says, stupid woman, when he hides his electronic companion device, it would have actually affected the merits of the plot from that moment forward. I think they would have had to change a lot of shit with the cameras and what's captured by this squad of men and what's shown on the video cameras. And it might have been significant. So I think what they did was fine. I don't mind the little trickery that was used. I think it adds to the tension when Kurt Russell realizes he's not the sleeper. Shit. Now the Jolly Rogers on these F-14s, it's a skull and bones, looks really cool. They all have similar paraphernalia on their jets, and I like it. Now, of course, Cahill is a design engineer, so maybe he can reverse design the bomb, and maybe he's the guy with Cappy's help to defuse this thing. And I love this line of dialogue delivered by Kurt Russell. What do you want me to do? He is out of his element here at 40,000 feet or however many feet, but they're asking him to step up and basically be an elite special forces operative where he's going to have to kill people. And even though you can see on his face, he's better at providing intel and typing on little red dots the word terrorist in a number configuration, but he is willing to do it because he knows it's what he needs to do. What do you want me to do? Excellent Kurt Russell. I say if you were going to give two awards for acting in this film, Kurt Russell and John Leguizamo. But Stephen Skull is also fantastic in the roughly 15-20 minutes of screen time that he has, if that. That is an awesome, that is an insanely gnarly, rad, bodacious laser wire stripper. It's a laser that removes the outside layer of the wire, the protectant layer of the wire, the coating of the wire, and it's really cool. Also, I love that these things are called alligator clips. That is an apt name if I've ever heard it, because they look like a couple of little metal alligators. You think they're about ready to storm this cabin. Like They are all set to blow the lights, storm the cabin, and shoot some shit. But they can't. They're told at the last minute to abort because the bomb was a decoy. This is insane. This is absolutely insane. They really take you to the edge of your seat to the point where you're about to fall on your ass, and if you're in a movie theater, you'd probably land in some unknown pile of goo. But they stop, and I like that. 
that's not done in a lot of movies. They don't usually take you to the point where you think there's going to be a climax, but it's a false climax, or you get blue balls altogether. But for the purposes of this film, I think it works. They're saving it for a unexpected moment later involving Kurt, my main man, Russell, and his blue hoodie that bring out his blue eyes, his sparkling blue eyes, strike deep into the heart of the infidel, Yafa's free. And of course, as I mentioned from the IMBD, that phraseology was twisted around just a little bit to be sympathetic to some horrifying events that occurred in early 2000s in America. But then we get, it's an executive decision now. Now that was smooth, for real. Sometimes these films like to incorporate the name of the movie in the film, and sometimes it just feels forced. It sounds trite. It sounds inorganic. But much like in the film The Insider, which will absolutely be a slick flick pick, I love when Al Pacino says, he's the ultimate insider. Well, here, when he says it's an executive decision now, and that's the Secretary of Defense that says that when he's referring to the president. I like that. Now, we know there's a sleeper, a trigger man on board, and we have to find what's going on with this bomb and baggage. Baggage, we'll find one in baggage. That is very good thinking on Kurt Russell's part yet again, as they're able to find a video camera so that he can try to find Hassan and where he is on the plane. Whatever you do, don't cut that wire. That's Joe Morton coming back from his, basically, coma. I mean, he was out unconscious for a while, but he saves the day and tells Cahill not to cut the wire. Cahill, of course, is the character played by Oliver Platt. And then I love how Kurt Russell tells him, use your magic wand. 2-1-K. 21-K! The look on Baker and Grant's face when they make this realization of what was written on Halle Berry's beautiful hand, that is what I like. Even though they're adults, mature, grown-ass adults, they can still have kid moments of excitement and glee. It's a decoy. It's a fucking decoy. The real bomb is below this plate. What a bummer. So that's a couple of times where you got really, really suspensed and you were in a very suspenseful state and then bam, it doesn't happen the way you think it's going to happen. Now, what they do with the brake lights is absolutely brilliant. They use Morse code through the brake lights to warn the pilots not to shoot down the plane and that Operation Hail Mary is a go. And this, of course, is relayed to the Secretary of Defense. But it's that moment where they're doing the makeshift Morse code with the brake lights of the plane or the taillights of the plane. I don't know that they're brake lights. I mean, I don't think planes should be that close in secession. But that's the scene from my favorite line in scene where David Grant and Baker are like, Jesus, they got it. They got it. They got it. I take back every rust-picking, squid-hating thing I've ever said about swabbies. That is where that comes from. And it is a great line. Now we have a senatorial sacrifice, RIP JT Walsh, as he is dead. And he's dead in real life. So RIP twice. Now it's just like the film The Rock. It is decision time. Do we destroy this plane with over 400 passengers? Or do we let him wipe out Washington, D.C.? The clock, as they say, is ticking. Morse code now. Hail Mary, Alpha One, 10 minutes. They're asking for 10 minutes of time to complete their mission. And I love when he says, the pilot of the jet behind them says, Well, I'm a bit rusty, but I think it translates to, Yeah, rusty my ass. You translated the message perfectly. Five minutes, rat. Give them the five minutes. I like that rat, once again, wants to go in guns blazing, but I understand why. But the remainder of his team says, give him the five minutes, because it's worth trying to disarm the bomb so that we might actually have a chance. And this reminds me of the scene in Tears of the Sun with Bruce Willis, where before they go into possibly sure death, he asked for the input from all the guys on his team. And one of the guys had a gorgeous and a phenomenal mohawk I can relate. Now, that's good timing on the air marshal coming out of the shitter on the plane, because he's actually able to see some important things, such as Halle Berry and Kurt Russell. He's holding a gun, of course, and he looks very sweaty and disheveled, but he moves with purpose and she lets the air marshal know he's okay. We realize 
that the sleeper that was holding this electronic device is not the sleeper. It was simply a compartment that was holding his diamonds. So then we realize that the real sleeper is elsewhere on the plane, and he starts getting very cozy with that beeper. It's a sleeper with a beeper, and he's about ready to blow this bitch. We've lost pressure. Of course you've lost pressure. You've got a hole in the size of the plane that looks like that giant hole in a Simpsons episode where the whole town would go to throw things in the hole. It's where Homer Simpson threw the Krusty the Clown doll, I think. It's over. It's over, says Kurt Russell. It's not over. You're very clever. You've stopped nothing. Now Rat got the SOB. Rat shot Naji Hassan dead. And it's very satisfying. Cappy is in so much pain. <laughs> Remember, he's all busted up, his back's fucked, and this plane is experiencing colossal torrents of turbulence. So I can only imagine how loud and for how long he's screaming in the belly of the plane as it's going, Brrr. thank Christ for sand. If it wasn't for these sand pits at the end of the runway, this 747 would be in millions of 747 pieces. So I'm very appreciative to see the sand there, as is Grant. Now, you want to talk about a moment that could so easily be cheesy, moldy, moldy and cheesy, moldy Swiss cheesy. The salute that Rat and his crew give to Kurt Russell, that could have been absolutely catastrophic. Anyone who identifies that scene as being corny or rolling their eyes, they can choke on Cahill's magic wand. That scene works for me. It worked in the 90s. It works now. I buy it. And this crew should be working together time and time again on clandestine operations in the future. Lastly, after saving the day, much like James Bond would, in a tux of course, Halle Berry corrects Kurt Russell. It's Gene. My name is Gene, not Jane. What an asshole. But not quite. These two are shacking up. And they're going to make some very pretty babies. That is a great film. I've seen it about nine times. I like the beginning. I really like the middle. And I like the ending. And as I can learn and still grow as a worthwhile cinephile, I appreciate the fact that the Kurt Russell piloting scene at the end is abnormally realistic. I appreciate that. Love this flick. Would happily watch it again. Highly recommend it if you're looking for John McClane on a flight. Ebert gave it three out of four stars. This is the kind of film that supplies subtitles on the screen with such helpful information as over a shot of the Parthenon, <laughs> Athens, Greece. Wow, what a sarcastic asshole. And with dialogue such as, I take back every rust-picking, squid-eating thing I've ever said about squabbies. Roger Ebert made a career out of reviewing film, and he says, rust-picking, squid-eating thing. Per my analysis, it's squid-hating thing. But I guess squid-eating works too? I don't know. He doesn't always get his facts right, which will come out if it hasn't already come out in some of the slick-flick-pick analyses that I've provided. And with Marla Maples in an almost non-speaking role as a flight attendant who has three modes, dedicated, concerned, and deeply concerned. Okay, I agree with this. She is pretty though. Donald Trump did well in an ex-wife. She was attractive. If she decides to continue her acting lessons, I hope she gets a teacher who tells her that in the movies, experienced actors do not try to mirror emotion in their facial expressions because it always comes across as overacting. Seagal leads the strike force with Russell and Platt reluctantly coming along for the ride. And at this point, the movie succeeded in surprising Ebert, because while trying to board the plane, Seagal is sucked out of the tube and into the jet stream, no doubt to fall five miles while screaming the very same word that Butch and the kid shouted when they jumped off that cliff. Well, that's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, no doubt. But any movie prepared to kill off Steven Seagal in the first 20 minutes is prepared for anything, and so I perked right up. I like that. I like that too. Uh, it's like the Drew Barrymore effect in Scream, but it goes back to Janet Leigh and Psycho and well before that. 
If you have a top-built cast member and they're killed early on or unexpectedly, that really makes the stakes interesting. It would have been easy to make the terrorists members of a non-sectarian movement, and I wish they had. What purpose does it serve to slander a religion? Okay, calm down, Ebert. There have been movies made about every walk of life, every criminal, every clandestine operation, every gang, mafia, every near-do-well, every terrorist organization, Patriot Games, and The Devil's Own both deal with the Irish Republican Army. And you don't see me wigging out. As the emergency develops, we meet a publicly seeking U.S. senator, one of the passengers, who is reminded by an aide, remember how much good press Jesse Jackson got for freeing the hostages. And Russell is able to enlist a heroic flight attendant, Halle Berry, ha 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 in his counterattack. She gets the movie's single funniest moment when she discovers <laughs> in the terrorist jacket a map labeled Washington, D.C. The map is singularly unhelpful, since all it shows is a dot identified as Washington, surrounded by concentric circles of, I guess, spreading toxic gases. Can you imagine the toxic gases that were emanating from the commode on the flight after the air marshal left it? and close the door? I can't imagine, and I wish I couldn't. Fantastic flick. Please go to Apple Podcast and rank me, rate me, and leave comments. I would very much appreciate it. It's probably just rate me and leave comments, but I like the rule of three. It's R, R, and C. Rate, rank, comment. I very much appreciate it, and I really enjoy putting these out for you. I put them out for me. I put them out for you. We all live in harmony, and I try to have guests on. I plan on having more guests on in the future, but I love these slick flick picks with such a ferocious and intense passion. I do these by myself, as you already knew. While Seagal floats away in freefall, Kurt remains uninjured, alive, and unhurt. While Oliver has gone fucking insane, Kurt lands the goddamn plane. I am sure, after this serving of Vortex Maelstrom turbulence, all will seek an ambulance. But one lingering question remains. Does Kurt, with Hallie, have a chance? She does gift him more than a glance. Perhaps he is profiting from fatalistic emotional circumstance. If she feels about hockey as she does romance, perhaps my main man Kurt can make his move and, on lean Jean, categorically advance. Or maybe they will simply dance. She'll casually admit she prefers men in finance. He'll misread her statement, offer a cash advance. Righteous indignation will then define her stance. Alas, their meeting was not divine assignation, but an F-star's fluke of happenstance. I remain always your fellow fiend for films, your worthwhile cinephile, and you are my cinematic fanatic. Keep that popcorn fresh, or at least edible, for my next Slick F-star's pick. Pick 30. Slick Flick Pick. Frost Bitten Neck. Foster the fangless imposter. 30 days of arterial sprays. 30 days of night. 2005. Love the film. Love vampires. Love when films incorporate vampires in an intelligent, creative, inexplicably memorable way. I treasure you, cinematic fanatics. Exiting stage speaker left. Your partner in slick pick cinema. Your worthwhile cinephile. Falsetto out.